Our scripture passage for this morning brings us to the book of Matthew chapter 5 as we read verses 33 through 37. Hear now the word of God. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, would you, through the words of your Son here today, challenge us in our words, challenge us in our lives, and prod us toward honesty, Christ-likeness, and integrity, that the watching world would know that we are your children. Send your spirit to equip us through your word today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We live in a day of cheap words. If scarcity is what determines something's value, then I think that's absolutely true. Today, words are cheap. Words are everywhere. We are flooded with them. People talk. They talk and talk. Turn on the TV and you will find no shortage of people willing to ruin your hearing any day of the week. Turn on your computer and all you see is the scrawlings of your fellow human beings all over digital walls, usually fighting and arguing with each other, consistently voicing their displeasure. And so because words are seen as cheap in our day, I think that modern people, and I'm including us in that, (laughs) I think we're modern people, I think modern people find a passage like this today from the Sermon on the Mount to be really puzzling. Because we may believe that God cares about the big stuff, right? We believe that he cares about murder and adultery, right? The sort of things we've been looking at for the last three weeks now, right? Four weeks we've been looking at murder and adultery, and divorce, and we say, God cares about those things. And then we might even believe that, therefore, he doesn't care about things like today, seemingly small stuff. And yet here in this passage, what does Jesus do? He follows up murder and adultery with a discussion about speech and how we talk to each other, how we talk about each other. Isn't that remarkable? God cares how we talk, and he puts it right there next to murder and adultery. Jesus cares about our our credibility before others. He cares about us being people who are truthful and upright and who have trustworthy reputations. And he spends time on this as he is talking to this massive crowd of people on the hillside. He has a captive audience, and he only has so many things he can say. And he says, I need to talk about how you address each other, and I need to talk about your credibility. And it's this small thing, words. And yet they matter to Jesus. 
As I was thinking about the subject of oaths specifically, which is sort of the, the organizing principle of all of this, I couldn't help but think about my grandmother, Doris Parker. Doris Parker was a remarkable woman. She's no longer with us. She's with the Lord. She spent most of her life around Haviland, Kansas. If, if you watch Ken Burns' documentary, The Dust Bowl, which I really recommend, I was in tears watching it, but I think it was because these were my people when I was watching it. I was thinking, this is my family. This is where they grew up. My grandma grew up in Haviland, Kansas, which is almost the dead center, the epicenter of the Dust Bowl. So if you watch that documentary and you're watching the lives of these people, what I was thinking the whole time was, I was not very interested when my grandmother told me these stories. And now I wish I had listened more to what it was like for her to grow up in such a difficult time period. Here's something that never registered with me now until I'm, I'm a, I'm a grown-up. Uh, my grandmother uh, lived in a family, uh, I believe she had four siblings, and she had an aunt, and her parents died during the Dust Bowl. And as you're watching the documentary, of course, with Ken Burns, you're thinking, wow, this is remarkable, the sort of weight that fell upon children. Sometimes you would have just a house full of children and suddenly these children have to take care of themselves and provide their own food and, and take care of one another or at least they have to somehow get to somewhere where there's life. Many of them fled to California. Many of them fled to the West because it was so unlivable. My aunt Trellabell. I don't know if you've ever met a Trellabell in your life. I have an aunt Trellabell. And she has a great name. Not only that, her, her name that I called her my entire life was Aunt Trolley. And I didn't know that was a weird name. Uh, but I've yet to meet a Trolley anywhere. So my Aunt Trolley, godly woman, she took and she raised my grandmother and her brothers and her other sister. And she raised these children. And she was only maybe three years older than them. And through the Dust Bowl. And... And so anyway, my grandmother and my, and my aunt, tremendously godly women. When I first became a Christian, I went and told my Aunt Trellabelle. And I remember that she had tears in her eyes. She was so happy. And every time I would go over to her house to mow her lawn, she would sit down and she would say, I want to read a passage of scripture with you. And that stuck with me, even now as I'm, I'm older. Um, but I have yet to meet another trolley, and I have yet to meet another woman like my grandma. And my grandma was a Quaker. Now, I don't know if any of you come from Quaker backgrounds at all, but I need to tell you a few things about my, my grandmother and about being a Quaker. One of the things you should know about Quakers is, at least, at least to me, her claim to fame was she had never been baptized. She was a believer in Jesus. She had never been baptized. She'd been a believer her entire life. But she did not believe that she should be baptized she used to tell me, it's an outward sign of an inward work. She would use that phrase very consistently. She said, you do not need to be baptized because the only baptism that matters, I already have it in my heart. And this was a conviction of the Quakers. It was what they taught. Uh, and I love my grandma. She's, she's with Jesus now, I am sure. Baptism or no baptism. I still wish she had been baptized. I still wish she'd been obedient to Jesus and visibly identified with his church. And yet I also believe she was born again and she knew the Lord. Now, I know that, that her lack of baptism makes her sound like some sort of super Quaker. Like, wow, she must have been a really amazing Quaker. Well, she, was, she considered herself a very disappointing Quaker. And the reason was she had another uh, claim to fame. Actually, she would have considered it infamy. And this was her claim to infamy. 
she was not proud of this. She wore a wedding ring. And in Quaker circles, her most ardent Quaker friends refused to wear wedding rings on their fingers. And so she had people, because they don't believe in symbols at all. They don't observe the Lord's Supper. They don't have baptism. They don't even, the most serious among them, don't even wear wedding rings. So when my grandmother got the wedding ring and she wore it, she had Quaker friends who refused to associate with her anymore. And she told me about her friends that she had lost because she got this wedding ring because they said she compromised with the devil by wearing this wedding ring. Um, I asked her, why did you fold on this, this issue and not baptism? Like if I was going to pick, I guess I'd, I'd want <laughs> baptism. Like Jesus doesn't say put a wedding ring on your finger, you know. Uh, that, you know, that's Beyonce that says that. Uh, Jesus says get, ma- get baptized, though. <laughs> so I said, why did you fold on the wedding ring and not on baptism? She said, well, your grandpa would marry me with or without baptism, but he refused to marry me if I wouldn't wear his ring. So I think there's a lesson here. Uh, this goes back to sort of any kind of dating advice I can give, which is, fellas, If you're in a bargaining position, if you're going to insist on a ring, go ahead and insist on baptism too. Just make that a, (laughs) make it tie them together, you know, like make it a a package deal. But but this position that that the Quakers held when it came to wedding rings was very fundamental to the way that they read the New Testament. And it came down to this idea of oaths and it came down to this idea of symbols. By the way, even many Quakers didn't even take wedding vows. So the Quakers looked at a passage like the one before us. They, looked, they took a look at this passage before us today, and they saw what Jesus says here. Jesus says, word for word, do not take an oath at all. And they said, it's simple. Jesus says, no oaths for Christians. And yet it is not at all necessary to read the passage the way that the Quakers do. In fact, if we're honest... The Old and New Testament both include positive affirmations and instructions and commands for taking oaths. I'll speak to that in just a moment. The truth is it's not at all necessary to understand Jesus as giving a blanket prohibition of oaths or vows. Uh, It's entirely reasonable to understand Jesus as saying, and I'm giving away the whole point of the message, really, that we should be honest people who speak and live in such a way that that oaths and vows are entirely unnecessary, so that oaths and vows are superfluous, so that when we speak, if we were to take an oath or a vow, it would be just as good as if we didn't take an oath or a vow to the person listening to us, because we have an established reputation for honesty. So that whether we make the vow or not, we can always be trusted. We can always be believed by anyone because of our reputation for honesty. By the way, I think that is a vastly superior harmonization than sort of the alternative, right? Because the alternative is for us to go example by example in the Old Testament when God commands an oath or where he shows himself taking an oath and saying, well, it's okay here, but it's not okay after this. And suddenly you're left sort of needing to go on a case-by-case basis explaining every occurrence of oaths in Scripture. So what's going on? Is this a sermon? Where I'm trying to persuade you all not to become Quakers? I I doubt that's going to happen. I don't think so. Nobody's expressed Quaker sentiments here. Um, I really just see this 
old discussion and this old debate as being relevant to us because it frames the text before us and it frames how others have looked at it so that perhaps we can look at it with a little bit of a squint and ask, what is Jesus saying here? Because others have wrestled over this. Now, I want you to see two things. I believe Jesus is moving us toward here. And then I I want to conclude with a positive understanding of this idea of oaths and, and what their place is for Christians. So our two points this morning are integrity in oaths and integrity in word and life. Jesus is pressing his people toward being honest, towards being truthful representatives of Jesus who reflect the truthfulness of God in how they live and how they speak and in how we act toward others. Those are the two points this morning, integrity in oaths and integrity in life. So the first point that I want to talk about is integrity and oaths. And and I'm calling it that because I want to make clear as we begin that Jesus is not forbidding oaths altogether. I'm giving a positive idea of what the point of oaths are. Now that might seem hard to believe that I would be saying positively there's a place for oaths in the Christian life. After all, Jesus does say, do not take an oath at all. I can imagine someone listening very critically saying this is just another example of Jesus speaking very clearly. And then some preacher comes along and twists Jesus' words to fit his agenda. I think first of all, it's worth saying I don't particularly love vows so much that I would just be crushed if we couldn't have them. If someone could show me and I were convinced that... that, that, that uh, The Bible said we should never, ever, under any circumstances, make a vow where we call upon God to be our witness. I would be absolutely fine with that, and I would refuse to take vows. Um, And I hope all of you would be willing to give up anything that God says that we should give up. If God says there's something you're used to doing and it's part of your routine, but it's actually wrong, then we should die to that thing. We should have the same attitude towards oaths and vows. So I don't really have an an agenda except making sure the Bible is not interpreted in a way that leads to contradiction. So that's my agenda. I'm happy to go one way or the other if that's where the text leads us. But let me explain from Scripture why Jesus is not forbidding all oaths in every situation. Before we go further, please notice this. Jesus is interacting with the scribes and Pharisees here. He's not interacting with the text of Scripture. So there is not a direct quotation of the Old Testament. You know, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he's not quoting the Old Testament text. He's quoting the scribes and the Pharisees and their teaching. So this is, this is not like his discussion of murder and adultery. Because his discussion of murder and, and adultery, what does he do? He goes to the second table, the Ten Commandments. He quotes them, and then he shows how we need to have a deeper appreciation for what those texts are. Here, he's not taking the Old Testament and deepening it. He's taking a teaching by the scribes and Pharisees, and he's working with that. He's he's addressing that. He's interacting with that. So I think that's key to understand what's going on here. Jesus is not taking on a biblical teaching. He's taking on the Pharisees' handling of their interpretation of the Bible's teaching. God's word is consistent. God doesn't contradict himself. Sometimes we think he does. That's because we have problems understanding the text. The problem is not with God, and it's certainly not with his word. And so when we see God say two things, they seem to cancel each other out, or they seem to uh, overlap with each other in a negative way, 
it means that we are missing something, not that God is missing something. So on the one hand, you have this passage today. It seems to say, no oaths at all. Do not take an oath at all. On the other hand, you have these two biblical realities. Here's the first biblical reality. We have positive examples of oath-making in the Bible. And you might say, well, there are sinners in the Bible. There are people in the Bible who do sinful things. So it's no proof at all that oaths are okay, that people take oaths in the Bible. Well, what if God takes an oath? God's not a sinner. <laughs> See, here you have uh, some examples from Deuteronomy 31. Moses says, you shall go into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. So you have God swearing in Deuteronomy 31. You have Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The Lord has sworn. You have Isaiah 62, 8. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. And then Hebrews 7 recounts this text and favorably says, yes, and there is security here. We'll talk about that in a little bit. You also have examples of Paul making oaths in the New Testament after Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. You have uh, Romans 1.9, 2 Corinthians 1.23, Galatians 1.20. All of these passages where Paul swears an oath that what he is saying is absolutely true. You have an angel in Revelation 10.5. He raises his right hand to heaven and he swears by God that there will be no more delay. He swears as a way of highlighting the truthfulness of what he is saying. So over and over again, you start to see this cumulative picture in the Bible that there is not this blanket condemnation of oaths or vows before God. That's the first thing I want you to notice about the Bible. The second reality is this. God doesn't just by example show us oaths being made, but he commands us to make oaths as an element of worship. I want to point you to two places. In Deuteronomy 6.13 and in Deuteronomy 10.20, God tells us, You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. By his name, you shall swear. So notice this is given in the imperative. So this is not just saying, hey, this is something someone did, but he's actually commanding it. How does swearing by God's name worship him? How does, how does God get glory when we swear by his name? Hebrews 6.16 explains it for us. Hebrews 6.16 says, People swear by something greater than themselves. People swear by something greater than themselves. So when we swear in God's name, that is, when we say that something is true, and we call upon God to be our witness and God to be our judge, how are we giving him glory? We're giving him glory by showing and testifying that he is greater than us and that he really does have a right to judge us if our words are not honored. It is a very solemn and even worshipful thing for us to swear. Calling upon God as our witness. Vows are a way of worshiping God. They're actually an element of worship. In our, in our denomination, did you know... 
that in judicial proceedings, we do not accept the testimony of an atheist as evidence in a, in a church trial. So if an atheist was to come forward and says, I saw this person do something, we would not accept their testimony as evidence. And we actually had an, an overture this last General Assembly where they wanted some, there was a presbytery that said, hey, this is a little old-fashioned. Old we should allow the testimony of atheists. And the General Assembly soundly voted it down once again. We, we had it put before us as an option. And the reason is because vows are explicitly theological in nature, and an atheist is incapable of taking a vow sworn in church courts. They can't make, in all honesty, the vow that we ask them to take. Because the vows call upon God, and vows do give glory to God. Vows are a way of worshiping God. And because vows and oaths are a way of worshiping God, we even include them as elements of worship in our services. I don't know if you can think of the last time that we saw oaths taken, vows taken during worship service. Uh, we do oaths and vows whenever someone joins the church as a new member. Uh, if someone joins as a new member, then we have them come before the congregation unless they're transferred, in which case sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Uh, but we have them stand before the church and we ask those five questions. Those five questions that you were all asked in order to become a communing member of the church are asked as an element of worship. It's a way of worshiping God. And one of the things that we do is we make sure that the things we do in worship are, especially as elements of worship, are actually commanded in Scripture. Everything we do as an element of worship is in obedience to a direct, direct biblical command. If something is not commanded in Scripture, we have to abstain from including it in worship. The session has this important duty that we don't lead you as a church to do anything in worship that God hasn't commanded. Because we should never bind your conscience. We should never ask you to do something that God himself has not commanded. Um, I'll give you an example how we put this principle into practice. If you remember, we resumed having the offering during the worship service. For a while, we had the bag at the back and you could give your offerings there. But we actually moved to including it in the worship service. And, and I don't know how many of you read it, but one of the things I tried to do was on purpose give an explanation of why we would include offerings during the worship service. I wanted to show you from Scripture that the Bible actually says that we should worship God through our giving of tithes and offerings. And so I wrote out this document. And, and some of you may not have needed convinced about that at all. In fact, some of you probably thought, hey, this guy must have had a light work week. That he... <laughs> He explained this for us. He did not have to do that. And, and the reality is, you may know this and you may not know this, is that the session, we, are, we have to be very thoughtful about everything that we include in worship because we know what we're doing when we say, do this, worship God in this way. We're binding your consciences. We want to make sure God alone is the one doing that. And so we go to the text. We go to scriptures. Well, the same thing goes for taking oaths. Right? We intentionally receive new members and we do it in the middle of the service. We do it during the service so that when you take your vows, you're doing it during worship. When we, when we have a, a baptism, we ask the parents baptismal vows and then we ask the congregation, will you do this? Will you help this parent in the nurture and raising this child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? And you as a congregation, congregation respond affirmatively. You're giving a vow. 
You're giving an oath and a vow. You're, you're worshiping God by doing that. I don't know if it ever occurs to you that you're worshiping God when you do that during the service. Um, when I was installed as your pastor, I took vows. And you might remember that we did it in the context of a worship service outside. Uh, I call it the, uh, the Juan Perón porch, you know, where you kind of <laughs> giving the, the, the speeches from the balcony. Um, that's, where, that's where the installation service was, but it was during a worship service. Um, a wedding is meant to be a time of corporate worship, not just to say vows and sort of get out of there, but this is why a wedding really ought to include a minister, it ought to include a congregation, it ought to include the singing of songs and praises and the proclamation of the word, because we take these wedding vows to be an element of worship. They're a way of worshiping God. Now, that doesn't preclude other vows from being taken outside of worship. It just reminds us that vows are an element of worship. They're a great way that we testify to God. You are greater than we are. You stand over us and you watch our words and you know what we say and you know what we promise. So you have the Bible, which affirms vows, which affirms swearing by God's name and which gives us examples of God and examples of the apostles and the example of Jesus himself swearing or commanding vows. And you also have this statement from Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. What do we do about that? I think the answer is very straightforward. Jesus qualifies his statement. It isn't a blanket command, though it, it might seem like it at first. He doesn't just say, do not take an oath at all, period. Instead, he says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is its footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And so actually, this is a qualified forbidding of oaths. He goes on to forbid taking an oath by your own head as well. What's going on? The issue is that we aren't, is that they aren't swearing by God the way Deuteronomy says they should be. Look at all the things they're swearing by instead. They were making vows using created objects as their witness. They would swear by heaven, or they would swear by God's throne, or they would swear by the earth, or they'd swear by Jerusalem. But it's like they're intentionally dancing around swearing by God when Deuteronomy says that they should. And Jesus' issue was that these things aren't yours. You have no right to them. You can't swear by them, and they can't serve as a witness against you. Why would someone do that? Why would someone swear by a created object instead? I think part of the reason is they're swearing about things that they think are minor, things that they think might be small. If you say, I swear with God as my witness, I love this cherry pie. It's just too much, you know. Just too, just, I mean, it might be a really good cherry pie, but... You're, just, you're overdoing it, brother. Um, so what do you do? You choose something less instead. You start making oaths about things that don't even matter. Or, or worse, if you know that what you're saying is true, you might be tempted to minimize the oath to take some pressure off. You know? you're, not, you're not impious enough to call God as your witness about your love of your cherry pie, but you might be willing to pinky swear by it. It's a good pie. Here's what's, here's what's really happening. Jesus is forbidding people from swearing oaths casually for, for mundane things, mundane situations, right? You want to convince your friend you really saw that car crash. So you say, I swear it really happened. Um, 
You want someone to believe that chili was the spiciest chili you ever had. I swear that chili was so spicy. Um, I had a friend in high school. Um, he was such a good salesman. He just made me believe everything that he ever said, but he always preceded it by saying, I swear it's true. And I totally bought it. Um, swearing rash vows, lazy vows, or, or silly vows denigrates God. It, it makes it as though it, as though he doesn't matter. It makes it as though God is some kind of joke, some sort of prop to sort of help people believe my little stories that I tell. That's why he's not to be invoked or brought as a witness for something that doesn't matter, something that is frivolous. In scripture, when people take vows, they take vows for momentous things, as God does. Our own church confession summarizes the Bible's position on this well. Here's what our church confession says. If you want to know what the Presbyterian Church believes, Westminster Confession 22 says this, Yet as in matters of weight and moment, an oath is warranted by the word of God under the New Testament as well as under the Old. There are times, what do they say? Matters of weight and moment. There are times when it is absolutely appropriate to make a vow or swear an oath before God. Think of the sort of solemn occasions when we make oaths before God. When we testify in court. When we serve on a jury. Right? Both of those are serious occasions where matters of justice hang in the balance. We take vows when we, when we marry. You know, is it any wonder that this passage about vows follows immediately on the heels of the discussion about adultery and divorce? It's not an accident. Um, when you join a church, a very serious thing happens. When you take vows, you say, I'm going to do this. Pastors and elders take vows when we're ordained. I took vows when I was installed as your pastor. These are very solemn moments. They are not common everyday occurrences. They don't happen all the time. And consider what happens when we make these vows. We're calling upon the God of heaven and earth as a witness for us, aren't we? I'm to be believed because I am telling you this, knowing that, I, that the God of the universe is watching me and he is greater than I am. That's a serious thing to do. So when we're doing this, we're, we're offering him worship. See, God calls us to make vows, in other words. We have to have integrity in our vows. Second today, I want to positively move toward what Jesus wants for his people. Because really, he is getting at this symptom again. We're talking about symptoms. And remember, we talked about this. Jesus addresses the presenting symptom. And then he wants to get at the sin under the sin. And so I want to positively look, what is Jesus doing here? He is giving his people an impulse toward a life of words and integrity. That's the second thing I want us to see. Remember, Jesus doesn't just aim at our behavior, but he aims to get under our behavior. He's been doing this all along. Because remember, what is all of this about? Showing us what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Do you remember that when Jesus said that? I don't know, was it five weeks ago now that we, we looked at that passage? And I told you, all this stuff that's coming after is Jesus commenting on what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, to do that, you have to get at the heart because the scribes and Pharisees stayed on the surface. They don't, didn't go deeper. And now he's taking us deeper. See, Jesus is concerned that these rash oaths, these vows that people are making 
were actually a shield for dishonesty. Leviticus 19.12 says, when we, prof- we profane God's name when we swear falsely. Leviticus 19.12, we profane God's name when we swear falsely. And Jesus is warning his people not to be false. He's warning us not to be dishonest. Paul says this, he says, do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. Dishonesty, lying, these are things that dishonor God and are especially offensive for someone who purports to follow Christ. If we spread false reports, if we spread false information, if we spread anything that isn't true, we are behaving as those who haven't been, been redeemed by Jesus at all. And Jesus tells us exactly what he wants right here. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. James says it this way, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. Again, notice he doesn't forbid us to swear with God as our witness. He says, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. If we have to dress up our words to be believed, or worse yet, if we have to use vows or oaths to cover up our lies, it is all the worse. And we fall under condemnation. That's what James is telling us. Um, I had some experience with this. When I, when I first became a pastor, I was very trusting and very naive even. Now I'm grizzled and embittered. But <laughs> not really, I hope. <laughs> but I, do have my ro- I don't have the rose-colored glasses I did in year one. I'll say that much. One day I was in my office at the church in Mississippi and I heard a knock at the door, and there was a man standing there, and his, his eyes are full of tears, and he ex- explained to me his, his daughter had just died. Uh, she had died a few hours before at, at Blair Batson Memorial Hospital. It was a children's hospital in Jackson, Mississippi. And we were maybe, our, ch- our church was maybe 15 minutes from there. So he told me, he said, I've been staying at the Ronald McDonald house through my daughter's entire sickness, but now they said we cannot stay there for another night because... Uh, our child was no longer in the hospital. Could, he said, could I please have $33 so that me and my wife could stay another night at the Ronald McDonald house? And I was so broken up over this man's situation that I did not even bother checking on the details of the story. I invited him into my office and, and, and I prayed for this man and, and I, I cried over this man. I, you, you might know me, I'm not much of a crier. I cried when I watched the movie Luther. Uh, I cried uh, at a very, very few, few things in life. That's just not me. And, and I, I wept with this man. And he wept too. Um, I just saw a broken-hearted man in front of me who just lost his daughter, and all he needed was a place for him and his wife to stay for the evening. And so um, I told him about God's love. I told him of God's kindness in Christ. I embraced the man. I told him, of course, you can have $33. I took care of him and sent him on his way. About a week or two later, I was talking to another area pastor, um, John Dawson. Sitting with John Dawson, and he said, man, he said, I just finished praying with this man whose daughter died today. 
So we compared notes, and sure enough, he was telling the same story to every pastor in the area. So after I shared this story with our deacons, they told me I was not allowed to give people money anymore. <laughs> they said, mercy, mercy ministry at the church goes through the deacons. And I agreed to that, and I've stuck to that ever since then. So a year later, it was a Wednesday night, it was a session meeting going on at our, in the, my office. We were in the office, and there was a knock at the church door. One of the elders goes to the door, and he says, he says uh, Pastor Adam, there's a man at the door who says he knows you. He'd like to talk to you. So I went to the door, and it was the man. Now, I know you're probably thinking, oh, this story has a happy ending. Oh, no. <laughs> it goes deeper. Uh, this man... Uh, we sat, so imagine just like our office here, there's an outer office. So I invited him into the outer office. The session members were all sitting in the room quietly listening to what's going on. The man walked in and he began his sales pitch to me. He forgot that he had come to this church the year before and told me this story. He said, sir, my daughter died today. Ronald McDonald House says that we can't stay there unless we come up with $33. I want you to know, I was not gentle with this man. I told him, I knew he had lied to me, that I knew he had lied to other pastors, and that if he did not repent, God would judge him. And he responded by saying, Lord is my witness. I promise that it's true. I mean, I, I, I could not be, have less of more of a tenuous moment. He swore it was true. I told him never in a million years would I believe he had multiple daughters, both of whom died a week apart. Never in a million years would I believe that a year later his other daughter would die and that the Ronald McDonald house would still only be asking $33 before they would throw him out on the street. And instead, and I don't do this very often. You know me. I've got kind of a gentle disposition, I think, maybe. Maybe, maybe you don't think that. I think I have a gentle disposition. But... I knew this guy needed, he needed the, his, the riot act. And I warned him what he had done. I said, you just swore a lie before the God of heaven and earth. And if you don't repent and stop your lying, he will hold you accountable for dishonoring his name. And the man just sort of froze. And I said, if you aren't going to confess to your lies and repent right now, you should go. And if you will not go, I will call the police. And he got up and he ran. As far as anyone ever ran from the church before, I think. I, so I dusted off my hands. I thought, this is exactly what needed to happen. I feel zero guilt about how I handled this situation. I rounded the corner into the pastor's study, and every session member sat there, mouth agape. <laughs> at what they had just heard. They said, preacher, I didn't know you had a mean bone in your body. I said, I have mean bones. I have lots of mean bones. But it was one of these really stark examples of exactly what Jesus is talking about here. And when people are blatantly sinning, they deserve to be blatantly warned. And in this case, this man was using an oath to cover up a lie. He was using an oath to strengthen a lie, in fact. In my experience, it's often the people who swear that it's true who are the least reliable and the least trustworthy. Why is it? They try to make such a big deal of things that don't even matter. Over $33. You would drag the name of God through the mud for $33.
They use the force of their words to establish credibility, and yet the Bible presents a very different approach. The person who lives a quiet, honest, ordinary, dependable life, and over the course of that life, they persistently grow in their trustworthiness before others. People learn, this is a dependable man, this is a dependable woman. There's no shortcut to being trusted. It takes time and honesty and repetition Now, maybe you don't go around swindling churches or lying to pastors for money. You might even feel pretty good at this point in the sermon, right? I didn't do that. I know that much. But are you trustworthy in your daily dealings? Do you record the correct hours when an employer asks how you spent your time? Uh, Do you share things that you're sure are true and not just rumors on social media? If you share something that you find out later is false, do you post a retraction so people know the truth? If you're a student, do you cheat on your tests? you copy answers from other people? Do you represent things as your work when actually they are someone else's? 